0: All right, Hebrews 11:4 says by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks and then in Genesis 4 I'm going to just read the first 5 verses verses it says now Adam and Eve knew his Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain Saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Uh, Well, today we begin the journey of looking at some of the specific people that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. If you remember, last week we started this new series called Commendable Faith, where we are going through and walking through the people in Hebrews 11, but not just looking at their stories, because most of their stories are pretty well known, but looking specifically at their faith. Now, I want to start off this morning because I want to look at a specific word that's mentioned all throughout Hebrews 11, and we talked about it last week. We just didn't have time to go into that much detail, but I want to talk about that word commended because it's tricky, okay? That word commended is tris- tricky because the translation in the ESV doesn't full- fully communicate its fullness. It's hard as an English word to fully understand what this word is meant to mean. So when we say commendable faith, what are we talking about. Because in English, that word is like, if I write you a thank you note, right? I'm I'm commending you um, for something. But that's not the same in the original language. At its core, the idea that God is communicating through that word commended is a legal idea. It's the idea that God has bore witness to something. God has given a testimony on someone's behalf. That's what that word committed means. So imagine if you're in a courtroom and the defense is trying to make their case for you and all of a sudden a killer eyewitness comes in, right? They can't, you can't deny this witness. And that person sits down and they say, I saw what happened. I know what happened. They are an authoritative witness that proves without a shadow of a doubt your defense. That's what's being communicated in Hebrews 11, that God is the authoritative witness and he is declaring these people are commended. And what we are told is that these people in Hebrews 11 had the approval and endorsement of God. They were commended. So the question for us then is, okay, how do we get that? How do we get that? How do we get the certainty that God accepts and approves of our faith? Well, that's the journey that we begin today. And we're going to start with Abel. So let me read verse four again to you. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So the question we have to ask today is why? Why does God commend Abel for his faith? Why did God look on favor favor with Abel and consider him as righteous? But Cain, he does not. He does not. That's the question we're going to ask today. So in Genesis 4, 1, the first two verses, um, we're going to talk about Cain. Okay. Hebrews 11 contrasts Cain with Abel. And we have to understand why of all the examples given to us in Hebrews 11, this is the only one that's given to us by way of contrast where God compares someone to someone else. And in Genesis 4, almost every single detail in the first two verses give us the assumption that Cain is the favorite son. Are there any siblings here that think they're the favorite son? All right. Um, both in his parents' eyes and in God's eyes, it's written as if he's the privileged son. He's the firstborn. It's, it's a privileged position. Cain grew up to be like his dad, a, a tiller, right? He was a tiller of the soil. Cain's name means to bring forth or to acquire, and later on in the Old Testament, it's the same word that used regularly to describe God's redemptive, creative activity and acquiring for himself a, pe- a people. And, and, and this is true. I mean, it seems that Eve, right? Compared when you look at Genesis 3.15, it, this is where the idea comes from that he is going to bring forth a descendant that will crush the head of the serpent. Like look at Genesis 3.15. This is when God curses Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a descendant is going to come from this line and regain the garden of Eden. And Abel, think about it, he's almost like an afterthought in these first two, two verses. It just says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel's name means vapor, vapor. Nothing was expected of Abel because it's assumed That his brother was better. But that's not how it plays out, is it? Here's what's interesting. Cain goes on to live his life (laughs) and to live a pretty successful life, but Abel's life really does turn out to be a vapor. But Hebrews 11 only commends one of them. And here's the takeaway. You can go on to live a pretty good life in the world's eyes. You can live a worldly successful life, but at what price? And in the midst of every day, we are tempted to gravitate towards investing all of our time and our affections into the things of this world. But at the end of this life, those things are fleeting. That the reality is that every single person on the globe, for the entirety of their life, will spend it making an offering. Making an offering. That's what Cain and Abel did. Think about them. Why did they even bring an offering to God? Why did they even do it? God doesn't command them to do that in Genesis 4. The text just says that they did. And I think it's because they know what we all know, that we are all the same. You cannot approach God just as you are. You have to go to him with an offering. You have to offer God something. And you might say, well, that was just primitive times. And in primitive times, that's just what they did. You had to appease the gods. You might say, well, We're enlightened now, so we don't have to do that anymore. And I would say you have vastly underestimated how our sin nature reveals how we desire to be whole in the presence of God. How our sin nature tells us that something isn't right here, that we have missed the mark, that deep down we all know that if we're going to approach God, if we are going to be in his presence, then an offering has to be made to him that by ourselves, we are not enough. That we're not enough. This is not only true with how we approach God, but it's also true with how we approach one another. This is easy to spot in politicians, by the way, right? They come to us with a plan. They say, approve me based on my plan, right? What is that? It's an offering. It's an offering, but they rarely show you who they really are, do they? They don't let you peek behind the curtain. They control what we see of them. And and offerings always do two things. They create an image of strength on our behalf, and they hide our flaws. And you're like, okay, yeah, you get those politicians, Colton. We all do this. We all do this. It's how we approach every social circle. It's how we date it's how we enter into any relationship. We make offerings and that present an image of strength and that also hides our flaws. It's funny, I, I worked with youth and college students for over 10 years, and this idea became easier and easier to spot as time went on. Because when we're younger, we're so insecure about who we are. We're always wondering um, what about what we are presenting to others, if it's acceptable to them or not, when I was a college minister, um, you could spot the freshman guys immediately, right? Because they would walk in and they wouldn't have their hair done. Um, they would have baggy jeans on. They looked like they hadn't showered in days. But as time went on, they became sophomores and juniors and seniors. What do you think happened? They took a shower, right? <laughs> they, they, they put on a nice shirt. They, they got their hair done because they decided if I want a girl to date me, I better offer something better. I need to make a better offering than the one I'm making right now. And let me tell you, since I've been working with adults, adults are just kids that have learned to better control their offerings. (laughs) That's what we are. We have a better understanding of how to control what other people see of us. We know how to create an image of strength, and we know how to hide our flaws. Like Think about our marriages if you're married. The thought that someone would see how much we really struggle in our marriage is terrifying to us. The thought that someone would really see it in our minds and see how much we doubt God. That's scary, isn't it? That your people would see through your offering. That they would see who you really are. The thought that someone would see under our offering and say, Oh, you're not as strong as you look, huh? We all know that at our core, there is something that is missing. And we all long for the day where no more offerings are needed. We all long for the day where no more offerings are needed. We, we all long for what Adam and Eve had in Genesis 1 and 2, where the scripture says that they were naked and unashamed. What does that mean? It means they didn't have to make an offering. It means they didn't have to make an offering. They didn't have to approach God and one another without the need to hide anything. They were acceptable just as they are, but the minute that they disobeyed, they hid and they covered themselves. Why? Because they were no longer acceptable just as they are. So let me ask you, why do you, some of you, you kill yourself working so hard because you, you're making an offering. You want to be seen another way. Why, why do some of you, if someone asks you for help, you always say yes, even if it's to the detrimental of your own soul Because you're making an offering. You you want people to see you a certain way. It's your way that you see, you, you tell people that you are acceptable because all of us search for ways to commend ourselves, to be acceptable. Like, don't you see that I'm good? I'm a good person. But underneath all of that, your offerings, my offerings cannot fulfill what your soul truly thirsts for. That we all make offerings. We're no different than Cain and Abel. Now, Let's look at the nature of the offerings. If we're all making offerings to God, then what kind of offering should we be making? Verse three in Genesis four, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, at first glance, this actually looks pretty unfair, doesn't it? Because you might say, well, isn't it obvious they brought the type of offering that they had? Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a tiller of the, store, uh, of the soil. And so Abel brought some of the flock and Cain brought some of the soil. But Hebrews 11 tells us something very important. It says in Hebrews 11:4, by faith, Abel offered to God. It says that he made his offering by faith. Now we have to infer two things that Cain and Abel know here, okay? First, they have to have known, they have to have known the curse that God has laid on their parents. They would have known that God told their parents what would become of them now that sin has entered them. And they would have known what God said he was going to do, that one day a descendant of their mother, someone from their birth was coming to undo what the serpent did, and that descendant will suffer; his heel will be bruised, and the serpent's head will be crushed. And second, Cain and Abel would have known what God did right after their parents sinned against God. Look at uh, Genesis three twenty-one. It says, "Right after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree, okay, they have hidden themselves from God and covered themselves with fig leaves." They have gone from perfect peace with God to now condemned by God. Sin has broken their relationship. And in Genesis 3.21, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Notice something. Adam and Eve have already covered themselves with fig leaves. They've already covered themselves. They already made an offering that covers up their flaws to cover up their shame. So why does God make a make for them garments of skin to clothe them. Because in this moment, we see a much larger reality that foreshadows the rest of the Bible. That the larger reality is that your offerings, my offerings, will never be able to cover up our sin and shame before a holy and just God. It doesn't matter how pretty the fig leaves are, they will never be good enough. And it's a story that's told throughout the rest of scripture, through the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrifices and ultimately to Jesus, that the only way that your shame can truly be covered is through Jesus Christ. It's only if God does it for us. The garments of skin that clothe them is God saying to, to them, your attempts to cover yourself will never work. I have to cover you. And this idea is all throughout scripture. Isaiah 61, 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He has clothed me. He has covered me. And so when God covers Adam and Eve, it's through what? It's through spilled blood. Something has to die in order for their shame to be covered. So when Abel approaches God, what does he bring? What does he bring to it? He brings spilled blood. And he's not just bringing an animal. He's declaring on one hand, I know that I fall short. I know that I am not enough. And then he is declaring to God, I believe in your promise to my parents. I believe that someone someday is coming to defeat the enemy. Abel's offering is that of spilled blood that will cover his shame. Now, Cain presents an offering that declares his own righteousness, that declares his own works, that he's saying, God, look at me, look at what I've done, look how hard I've worked. Abel points to something that's coming. Cain points to himself. Now, consider this. We make offerings to God and to the world because we're afraid of losing control in our own lives. We are so afraid of God seeing us as we really are. And we're so afraid of others seeing us as we really are. We're afraid of being mocked. We're afraid of being shamed. Like, how many of you have been in that situation where you've actually been mocked, where you've been shamed, where you've been put on trial? It's a heavy feeling. Or you, can't, you don't even feel like you can defend yourself. These are some of our greatest fears as a people this idea that people would look at us and say, you are this. And you go, no, I'm not. But we're afraid of being put on trial. We're we're afraid of of shame. We're afraid of being beaten. And here's the deal. All of us know that we're guilty, but we all long for a verdict of non-guilty. And there is one who was guiltless. But what does he do? He takes on our greatest fears. The only one, the, think about it. The only one who could be naked and unashamed. The only one that is without sin is stripped only to have our shame placed on him. We're afraid of being mocked by others. So he takes it upon himself. We're afraid of being put on trial. So he takes on the trial himself. We're afraid of approaching God and being seen as unacceptable because of our sin. So what does he do? He takes on his sin, the sin himself. <laughs> he makes an offering on our behalf. He takes our sin himself. And this offering is through that of spilled innocent blood. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, here's what Abel is declaring by faith through the offering. God, I fall short. I cannot do it, but I plead to you, be merciful to me, not because of anything that I have to offer you, but because of this picture of innocent blood that I've spilled. May it cover my shame and may may it make me acceptable before you. And so here's the question for all of us. How do you know If the offerings that you are making day in and day out are acceptable to God, how do we know that? I want you to notice how Cain responds when God rejects his offerings. Verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Here's the deal with Cain's. Cain's never no matter how religious they are, no matter how many Bible studies they go to, no matter how much they read their Bible or how much money they give, Cain's never feel the commendation from God. They never have peace. Instead, they have anger, they have frustration, they work and work and work. And when God rejects their works, they respond with distaste and apathy towards God. Whereas Abel's present an offering of faith, That Abel presented his offering in faith that God could save him on the basis of innocent blood and we are to do the same. That we don't come to God and present our works. God, look at how much I do for you. God, look at how much I give to you. Look at how well I know your word. Look how good of a person I am. But rather we come as we are and we look to an offering that has been given on our behalf. That God, I can enjoy your presence because your perfect son has made an offering and sacrifice on my behalf. Ephesians 5 says this offering that's given by Jesus is a fragrant offering. It smells good. And it's pleasing and acceptable to God. And so in our offering, we say, by faith, God, I believe that the offering of Jesus Christ was made. That we all know that, An offering is required to be in the presence of God. And we know that we cannot provide a sufficient offering on our own, but we can point to the perfect offering that has been presented and say, on the basis of that offering, I can approach you with confidence. And you know what the big difference between Cain's and Abel's is? It's not the repentance of sins. It's not the repentance of sins. Even Cain knew something wasn't right. Cain has no problem admitting that he has sinned. The difference is that Abel also had to, repent of his righteousness. This idea that on my own, I'm righteous, that what, what made God reject Cain's offering was not that he wasn't to admit that he falls short. It was because he thought his good works was enough. He thought that he could do it. He thought that God would look at him and say, yeah, you're doing a great job tilling that soil. Your offering is acceptable. We present offerings in an attempt to divert, to divert God's attention from our sin to our good works. But here's the deal. Abel's don't stand on their own dignity, but they go in as they are and they trust in the offering. And that's the reason that Hebrews 11 says that Abel was commended as righteous because he didn't stand on his own works. He didn't trust in his works to save him, but he had faith that an offering of innocent blood could save him. And we're no different. We're no different. We have faith in the offering of Christ's sacrifice. And in that place, God calls us righteous. The last thing that I would say here about Hebrews 11, it says, Abel, that though he is dead, he still speaks. Though he is dead, he still speaks. What in the world does that mean? It means that his faith still speaks to us today. That generation after generation is reminded of the need for an innocent sacrifice to cover our sins. And Abel modeled to us what it looks like to not go to our works for salvation, but to look to a coming savior through the spilling of innocent blood would bring us righteousness. And so here's the deal. Let me just close with this. So many of us in here, we are just exhausted we're just exhausted. Because we try and we try and we try. And some of us do it through our actual careers. Some of us through it, do it through our morals. Some of us do it through politics. Some of us do it through religious activity. That we build up this altar. These offerings that we were trying to make. And at the end of making that offering, we're exhausted. And, we're, and then we look at God and we say, God, why haven't you given me peace? Why aren't you loving me? Why, why aren't you fixing things? But the reality is the only offering that is sufficient is the one that's already been given. It's Jesus. That he laid down his life for us so that we could look to him and go, you do love me. You do have a plan. You are here with me. That on the basis of that, God calls us righteous. He calls us friend. And through the basis of that offering that was given on our behalf, we are understood. We are loved. And the last thing, we were not going to go into it, but Romans 12 says um, that we are living sacrifices. We are living sacrifices. And, and I'm going to put on the discussion you got to talk about that verse in your home groups. Um, because what does that mean? What does that mean? That we are living sacrifices. That on the basis of what Jesus has done, our response to that is to worship. That our life is a declaration. It's a reminder of that offering. That Jesus, you are better, you are good, and so my life is an offering to you. God, will you use me as you will? I worship you, and I love you.